This morning, we're going to be looking at a parable in Luke chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 10. If you're using one of the blue hardback Bibles in the back, it's page 869. Um, This, of course, is a famous parable. The Good Samaritan has become somewhat of a legend. He's a kind of a larger-than-life hero figure across the world, across various cultures, both inside and outside the church. If you mention Good Samaritan, people often know what you're referring to. There are countless nonprofits and charitable organizations that are named after the Good Samaritan. Uh, Wikipedia lists 18 hospitals called Good Samaritan, which I feel like there's got to be more than that. But there are two right near us, right? One in, in Lebanon, PA, one in Baltimore, Maryland. The Good Samaritan Hospital modeled after the character we're going to read about today. The media, the news will often reference a Good Samaritan, right? If somebody helps out, somebody that collapsed on a sidewalk or whatever, they'll say, you know, Report at 11, Good Samaritan helps out local citizen, you know. And so Good Samaritan has become just sort of a a catchphrase, right? Um, The greatest cultural reference to the Good Samaritan in the Word of God may be the new Amazon feature film that was just released two days ago. Julie Coggins, you know what I'm talking about. Starring what may be the greatest actor of our time, Sylvester Stallone, who is, is starring as the superhero known as Samaritan. Okay, I gave it five stars, five stars out of ten. It was mediocre at best, um, and sadly, no sermon illustrations that I could use this morning, other than just to reiterate how renowned the Good Samaritan is, that now there's a superhero named after him. So, uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10. Now, look, here's the thing. The Good Samaritan is not even a real character, right? He's not even like a historical figure. He's a, a character that Jesus told a story about in a parable, right? These stories of the kingdom that we've been studying uh, all summer, and we're going to read about a man that was hurt and this Samaritan who comes along to help him. And this story is a story about mercy. It's a story Jesus tells to, to show us what mercy looks like and what it, lives, what it looks like to live a life showing mercy. And ultimately, our call as followers of God, as members who live in the kingdom, to be people who show mercy. And so we're going to pick up in Luke 10 verse 25, but before we get to the story Jesus tells, we begin with a lawyer. There's a lawyer that comes to Jesus and he asks two questions, and those two questions are going to kind of orient and guide our time in the Word. So, hey, I know we've already uh, sought the Lord in prayer numerous times this morning, but I'm going to pray again and ask for help, and then we'll dive in and read, picking up in verse 25. God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our summer looking at these stories of the kingdom. And I pray that as we wind down that you would continue to pierce our heart, carry us through these last two weeks. And this morning, Father, as we read your word, as we unpack together, I ask, Holy Spirit, that you'd come, that you would stir us, that this old familiar story would become new again, that you would stir our hearts to mercy that most of all, we would, be, we would be blown away by your mercy to us and that you drive us to be people who live lives showing mercy. So come, Holy Spirit, and be among us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? 
Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So, the passage begins with this lawyer coming up to ask Jesus a question. Now, don't think like civil lawyer in our context. This, this man would have been an expert in the law of Moses. He would have studied and taught and, and, and perhaps tried cases, but religious cases involving the Torah, the Old Testament law. Most likely he was part of the sect of the Pharisees, and he doesn't come to Jesus, doesn't seem to be a sincere seeker, right? He's not interested in, in really learning anything from Jesus or growing spiritually. Rather, he's trying to test Jesus, right? He's probably been sent by the, the, the Pharisee leaders. Remember, Jesus was a, a threat to the Jewish religious leaders. Jesus was a threat, and most likely this lawyer had been sent to try to manipulate, to try to catch Jesus in a statement that would underline, undermine the authority of the law of Moses, and they were looking for, for grounds. They were looking for a reason for Jesus to be punished. Of course, they had tried to trick and catch Jesus before, and he's too smart for them. He always outwits them. But they try again, and this man comes and he asks a pretty straightforward question. Hey, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Hey, maybe Jesus will say something contrary to the law of Moses. And so the man is asking, in essence, from your perspective, Jesus, how can I be considered a child of God? How can I be considered worthy of living with God in his kingdom forever? And it's a, it's a legitimate question. It's a question that many, many people have asked themselves, right? How do I know God? How do I live with God in his kingdom? And it was on the minds of many people at the time. If you look at Luke 18, there's another man we call the, the rich young ruler who asked Jesus the same basic question. And so Jesus answers in verse 26, and it's a super annoying answer. It's, it's something he does that, that annoys many of us when people do the same thing, right? He answers a question with a question. And my kids do this all the time, you know, they ask a question, or I do this all the time to my kids, you know, they say, hey, Dad, why is that gate closed? Or why is that building painted green? And I say to them, well, what's your theory, right? Now, here's the thing. Like, 80, 90% of the time, they get it right, right? They figure it out when I ask them, what, what do you think? And so Jesus says, well, what do you think? You read the law. You know the law. What, do you, what is your interpretation of the law? How do you read the Torah? And the man answers by referencing two passages from the law of Moses. You can see them on the screen. The first is Deuteronomy 6. The man is paraphrasing Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And then he references Leviticus 19.18, which has, had become a standout text. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
all the way back buried in the laws of the Old Testament. And so the man is not really saying anything revolutionary. He provides what would have been understood at the time as a basic summary of Old Testament law. Love God, love your neighbor. You read through the Old Testament law, there's about 613 laws there. They are, in essence, summarized in the Ten Commandments. Each of the Ten Commandments is expounded upon in the the, the greater laws. But really, those commandments can then further be summarized by those two Right? It was probably something that, that Jesus, that, that the man, that many people had memorized since they were small children. These two essential commandments. Love God with all that you have, with your heart, with your soul, with your strength, with your mind, and love others as you love yourself. You know, again, we see this come up in Jesus' ministry in Matthew 22. Another lawyer comes up and asks Jesus, Jesus, what is the, the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus gives an answer almost identical to the lawyer in this story. Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. Jesus says, this is the first and greatest commandment. But then he says, the second is like it. He can't even mention the first greatest without mentioning the second greatest. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, they're the umbrella that everything else hangs from, right? And so Jesus, in verse 28, he affirms to the man, hey, look, your summary of the law is correct. And then he says to him something that was more difficult than just summarizing the law, something that that likely pierced the man's heart. He says to him, do this and you will live. Okay, you're a fancy scholarly teacher of the law, that's great, now do it. Do it and you'll find life, right? Don't just talk about it, don't just teach about it, but live it out. You want to achieve eternal life? The man came to him saying, how do I enter God's kingdom? How do I inherit eternal life? He says, if you love God and love others, you will live. And he calls him, as the man summarized, to love, love the Lord God with all of your heart. That means all of your emotions, your will, your, your deepest convictions. Love God with all of your soul. Your soul is that immaterial core of who you are in your essence. Love God with all of your strength, with all of your abilities, with all of the power that you have. Love God with all of your mind, with your intellect, with your reason. You give all of yourself to God in love, in obedience, in commitment. Every moment of every day, every part of you is passionately loving God and then also loving others. Also loving others with the same commitment that you have for your own self. And so Jesus is giving this man directions. You want to know how to inherit eternal life? This is all you have to do. Two, two easy commandments. Just do that and you'll live. And so Jesus was correct that if we do that, if we can live out this high calling, we will inherit eternal life. But there's a problem. And the problem is that none of us can do this fully. Jesus, of course, knows this. That's why he had come to earth. He had come to earth because sin has tainted us, has tainted every part of us. See, even when we do the right thing, we often do it with tainted motives. So the reality is that none of us can fully and finally in every way walk in love for God at all times. None of us can live in love for others. We can't even love the people that we love, let alone the people that we don't love. See, to walk in love for God, which includes obedience to the law, because if we love the Lord, we're going to walk in His will. It includes love for others. If if we don't walk in that way, we, we won't experience life. We won't have life on a daily basis, because think about it this way. You know, God created us in His image to reflect Him, to be in relationship with Him. 
And only when we live as we were created do we fulfill who we are, do we find fullness and abundance. When we walk outside of God's will, we're not truly experiencing life. We're experiencing some sort of frail, fragmented, fractured, tainted version of what true abundant life is meant to be. And so even in the here and now, if we are not living in love for God and love for others, we cannot truly live. And surely in the life to come, if we do not live in love for God and love for others now, we cannot inherit eternal life. We cannot walk with God and live in his kingdom for eternity. And so rather than inherit eternal life when we die, the human condition is that we inherit, in essence, eternal death, eternal punishment. See, in order to receive eternal life, in order to inherit the kingdom of God, as, as was at the heart of this man's question, we need to live as God designed, to reflect him in love and purity and obedience. See, the problem with the lawyer's question is that it's based on a false assumption. He comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? His false assumption is that, is that as a human being, I'm capable of achieving eternal life. Just tell me what to do. If I just have the right combination of moral obedience and religious observation, uh, ob- observation that, that I can somehow work my way, achieve my way, earn my way into God's presence. But we know from Scripture, and even if you don't know the Bible, you know from your own experience that you can't reach God on your own. That none of us can walk fully in love and obedience as God created us. None of us can achieve eternal life on our own. There's nothing ultimately that you and I can do. The question is not, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But the the, the better question is, what has God done to gift me with a life with Him? A life with Him that begins now, that goes on in the life to come. Inheriting eternal life is a gift through the work of Christ, not through things that, that you or I can do. The Apostle Paul would summarize this whole perspective in this way in Romans 3, verse 20. Look at this verse with me. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, in God's sight. Meaning, by works of the law, by following the laws of God, no one can be justified, be made just or made right in God's eyes, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, what what is the manifestation apart from the law of righteousness? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all, everybody, every one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we are justified, we are made right before God by His grace as a gift. By His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Eternal life comes through the redemption, the rescuing, the purchasing us back from death into life. This son of his, Jesus Christ, who he put forward as a propitiation, that means an atoning sacrifice, one who stood, climbed on the cross, and received God's wrath, God's judgment, that's what it means to be a propitiation, that through his blood we can have eternal life. How is it received? The passage says received by faith. Friends, faith is just a fancy religious word to say you believe, you trust, you you fall down and you say I need you, I give my life to you, I believe and I trust 
Not, not just up here, but in here with all that I have. See, so this man came and he said to this controversial rabbi, this, this, this son of God, fully God, fully man, what must I do? And so often we live that way, even if we don't think it or say it subconsciously, what must I do today to earn the right to be loved by my spouse, to earn the right to find favor with others? What must I do ultimately to be right with God? And we so often live to try to justify ourselves to achieve our own favor with God. But it's the wrong question. Brothers and sisters, friends, you are justified. You're made right right only by God's grace. And the question is, do you have faith? Do you believe? Do you trust and hope that Jesus is your Savior? Faith in Christ, and the passage said there in Romans, it's the one who all the law and all the prophets, they longed for the coming of the Messiah. That's how we achieve. That's how we inherit eternal life is through the work of Christ, through his death on the cross to cancel out the debt of our sin, through his resurrection who fills us up now with faith and, and with new life, with victory to walk with him. That's how we inherit eternal life now and in the life to come. And so I call you to that faith. I call you to that place of hope in receiving God's grace today. There is a call, absolutely, there is a call to love God and love others. And the commandments that Jesus reiterated and summarized is the call for us, for those who live in the kingdom, for those who have been redeemed. Now, empowered by the Holy Spirit, now we can even begin to walk in love for God. But, but the lawyer in the story, he's not even there yet. He's not even there yet in his own heart to receive by faith the grace of God, to walk by the power of the Holy Spirit in love for God. But rather than just walk away mad, he asks the second question, because now he's a little bit embarrassed. And so he asked this follow-up question in verse 29. Verse 29 says that he was desiring to justify himself, right? See, he was hoping that Jesus was going to say something controversial. An argument would be started. He could catch Jesus saying something wrong, go back to his supervisors and say, look, Jesus said something unlawful. But instead, instead he's just kind of called to the, the heart of the issue. But he's kind of got to justify why he came to Jesus to begin with. And so he has to come up with a better question. He says, yeah, yeah, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbors yourself. Well, Jesus, who is my neighbor? That's, that's you know, let's, let's dig a little deeper. Who is it that I have to love in order to inherit eternal life? Now, again, just like the first question, I think the, false, the second question is kind of based on a little bit of a, of a false or a, or a kind of a messed up assumption, right? The, the man seems to be asking, okay, Jesus, in your opinion... What's like the least I have to do to meet this requirement? Like, can you just narrow down neighbor for me? Like, who is my neighbor? Because like, I can't love everybody. So just tell me who the bare minimum of the people that I have to love. Do I have to love the people that are on either side of me? You know, just like my direct neighbors? What about the across the street neighbor? What about the non-Jews? Is it Jews only Jesus that I have to love? Is it who, who am I required? You know, and I think we tend to do the same thing, like, okay, God, here's the law. Like, what's the bare minimum I can do to stay in the box of following that law, right? Whether it's don't look at a woman with lust in your heart, whether it's, you know, don't, don't lie. Well, if I, if I get right to the edge of the truth, is that okay, Jesus? Like, who is it that I have to, that I have to love? Do I have to love the people that are, that are hard to like? Do I have to love them too? 
Do I have to love the people that, that take up a lot of my time and are, and are kind of frustrating? What about the people across the street that I know are a bad influence on my kids? Can I just cut them out of my life or do I have to love them as well? What about the guy at work that's super cutthroat and deceptive who's, who's competing for the promotion with me? Jesus, do I have to love him? Do I have to love people with different worldviews, with different political views, with different views of culture and society? Jesus, am I called to love them as well? And we, we tend to want to narrow things and ask for the bare minimum, but, but the Lord God says love, love all. The bare minimum ultimately is to, to love everyone. Of course, that may look different. It looks different when you love different kinds of people in different situations. But Jesus wants to drive this point home, and so in verse 30, he's going to tell a story, right? He's going to tell a story to try to answer the man's question. But it's interesting that Jesus seems to be answering a slightly different question than, than the one the man asked. Right? Some, some commentators call it like a reversal of the man's question. See, the man is asking, who is the neighbor I have to love? And Jesus tells a story that in essence demonstrates what a loving neighbor looks like. And Jesus is answering the question, how do I love my neighbor? How do I love my neighbor? And so he tells this parable that we read, this familiar story. This man, he's leaving Jerusalem. He's, he's in Jerusalem, so he's most likely a Jew. He's headed towards Jericho, about an 18-mile trip. It was a, it was a downward descent, a 3,000-foot decline in elevation, and it's a, it's a rocky terrain. And so this was a common place for robbers to hide out and to ambush people coming in and out of Jerusalem. And so the man is attacked, he's robbed, he's stripped of his possessions and his clothing, he's beaten, and he's left for dead, left half dead, the text says. Now this is a time in an era where there is no highway patrol, right? There are no EMTs. And so this man clearly needs some help. Who's going to help him? And Jesus tells this story and he says, coincidentally, a Jewish priest just so happened to be walking by, right? You know, a priest at the time was, was somebody who served at the temple in Jerusalem. The priest sees the man, and he walks on the other side of the road to avoid him, right? Now, there was a law at the time that priests wouldn't have con couldn't have contact with the dead. So maybe the priest thought he was dead, or maybe he thought that he might die. And so he's like, I got to keep myself ceremonially, unclean, ceremonially clean so I can still work in the temple. He scoots around. The guy doesn't help him. Then Jesus says, imagine a Levite. Imagine a Levite walks by, in the same way, the Levite also ignores him. Now, Levites were from a tribe in Israel from which the priests descended. So all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests, if that makes sense. But he as well would have been a highly religious man. He would have helped the priests in the temple, would have been a part of the religious system. These are, these are highly religious men that should have been the very first people Right to help this man, to express love, to care for him, to at the very least, you know, gotten somebody else to come help him. But instead, they walk to the other side. Then Jesus says, imagine a third man, a Samaritan, walks down the path from Jerusalem to Jericho, sees the man, imagine that this Samaritan helps him. Now, this would have been a shocking turn in the story to his Jesus' first century Jewish audience. Because you need to understand, if you don't know it already, that there was a severe racial, political, and religious divide, a tension between the Jews of the first century and the Samaritans. you got to go back to the history of Israel to fully understand what's going on here culturally. Remember, at a period in Israel, there were 12 tribes unified, but at a certain point, the 10 northern tribes broke off on their own. You had the northern 
kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Israel. The capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria. Okay? When the Assyrians, people of God's enemy, came in the 8th century and conquered the northern tribes, they took all the rich nobility from those 10 northern tribes of Israel into exile. And they took all the rich nobles out and they replaced them with their own rich, wealthy nobility. And these Assyrians settled in the northern part of Israel. But there were some Jews that were still left in the region and over the generations, the Assyrians and the northern tribes of Israel began to to marry and began to create a new race of, of part Jew and part Gentile. Additionally, the people in the northern tribes were cut off from the temple in Jerusalem, but they still had religious practices. Many of them still even had some sense of Yahweh. So they formed their own temple, their own religious practices, their, their own way to, to worship God distinct from the faithful Jews in the southern part of Israel. And so what happened was this great divide, a racial divide, a cultural divide, a religious divide. And over the centuries, it got to the point where Jews and Samaritans hated each other. Would, would avoid each other, wouldn't look at each other, wouldn't visit each other's towns or, or connect culturally. But despite this, verse 33 says shockingly that when this Samaritan saw the man beaten and bloody and left for dead on the side of the road, what does it say in verse 33? What did his heart do? He had compassion. All of his cultural upbringing couldn't, couldn't counteract the fact that his heart broke. And he has pity and he has sympathy. And, and you may have know that feeling, that feeling of just where your heart breaks and you hear a story or you see, you see someone or you hear about someone and you just, your, your heart longs for them. And you, you think, ah, oh, if my son were in that position, what would I be feeling right now? And so this man's heart breaks from compassion. He's not doing this out of any sense of, of duty or obligation. He genuinely wants to help the man. He goes over... He, he binds up his wounds. He uses wine as an antiseptic. He uses, he uses uh, oil to moisten and soothe the wounds. He wraps him. He puts the man on his own donkey. He walks him to the closest, closest town. He stays with him through the night, nursing him back to health. And in the morning, he gives the, the innkeeper the equivalent of a few hundred dollars. And he says, and he says care for the man. I got to go do my business. I'll come back. Any other debt that's been left unpaid, I'll settle up when I return. I mean, what a guy. Right? If this had been like an uncle, we would think like, wow, that's impressive. Right? He's not even of the same country, not even of the same culture. What a guy. I mean, this, this good Samaritan truly exemplifies the heart of what Jesus is trying to communicate. And so Jesus finishes the story, and he asked the lawyer in verse 36, okay, three men, which of them proved to be a true neighbor to the man in need? Like, who truly was a neighbor? Who truly acted in love? Now, it's, it's kind of an insultingly obvious question, right? Now, remember, the question that Jesus just told the story to answer, the question that he's trying to answer is, is how do I love a neighbor? What does a loving neighbor look like? Of these three, which one of them responded in love? The answer is, is painfully obvious, but, but this, this religious prestigious lawyer can't even bring himself to mutter the words uh the samaritan so instead he just says the uh the one who showed mercy and jesus says yes now go and do the same you go and show the same kind of loving mercy to those in need just as this samaritan did 
Now don't lose sight, again, let's not lose sight of how astonishing it is that Jesus put a Samaritan as the hero of the story. To the lawyer, this Samaritan being a hero is, is an atrocity. This guy who's not faithful to the Mosaic Covenant, who doesn't worship at the true temple, who is intermixed with, with Israelite practices and Gentile practices, surely he's not one who's in God's kingdom. But Jesus is in essence saying to the man, look, you want me to define who are the neighbors you're expected to love? Here's a Samaritan showing the mercy, the heart of God for a Jew. And if a Samaritan can do that for a Jew, how much more should you not do that for any and everyone in your life? All men and women, you should call neighbor. Let, let, let him in the story be an example to you. An example to you. And this story is such a profound story. Again, it's, it's risen above culture and time and context. We, we, we have the Good Samaritan as a hero. And it's an example of God's grace, of God's love, of God's mercy working through a human agent. And if you've ever been the recipient of a Good Samaritan, if you've ever been the recipient of a stranger who came to you in a time of need and helped you and blessed you, not, not talking about a friend or a church member, but, but somebody who just found you on the side of the road, you know that it's like an act of God, right? You, you receive it as a demonstration of, of God's work in your life. I, I thought about a story, and th- this is like a 20-year-old 20, 20 story, I guess, because Karen was pregnant with Simon. And we had taken uh, a little last-minute getaway to Florida. I guess now they call it a baby moon. And so we were coming back from our baby moon, and Karen was pregnant. Now, my father runs a a concrete business, and his office is near BWI Airport. So I have, like, free airport transport anytime I want. So when I go to the airport, we drove to the office. My dad hopped in our car, dropped us off at the airport, and then he takes the car back to his office and parks it. When we got home from this trip 20 years ago and took the cab, because they didn't have Uber back then, took the cab to my dad's office to get the car, hopped in, put the key in, and realized that the battery was dead. Come to find out, when my father had dropped us off, it had been early in the morning and the lights were still on, and he left the lights on you know, for five days while we were awake. So here it is now, 10.30, 11 o'clock at night, in this you know, commercial uh, uh, parking lot. Um, with no car, no ability to, you know, drive the hour back home. And so I, I guess questionably, now that I'm telling the story, left my wife in a dark parking lot and walked down to the closest gas station, sorry, hon, and, uh, and, and came up to the first guy that I saw pumping gas, you know, probably late 40s, beat up pickup truck, come to find out he had just gotten off a second shift at a factory. I explained my situation. He says, no problem, man, I'll help you out. Hop in the truck. And so I lead him then down this dark parking lot to the back of this uh, industrial complex where the office was. Apparently, I was no threat to the man. And, uh, and, and so he's going to help jump the battery, right? And so he's got jumper cables. I'm, of course, just gushing with thanks. Thank you so much. We appreciate this. Introduce him to my wife. He puts the cables on, you know, and then you have to chit-chat, right, for like five minutes because you've got to wait for the car to charge up. Five minutes go by. He says, go, go turn it over. Oh, no problem. We'll, we'll wait a few more minutes. Wait another five minutes, another 10 minutes. It, after like the third time of trying, I finally said to my, what at the time felt like my new best friend, Phil, 
I said to Phil, I said, man, you, you've been so gracious. I was like, it's 11 o'clock at night. You're tired. You just got off of work. Please go home. I said, I'll just have to call. He said, no, we'll just keep waiting. We'll try again. Like, I, what do you think it was? At least a half an hour, right? And at this point, I had given up. Like, I figured the batteries to the point where it's not, this man would not give up, despite my best efforts to, like, send them away. Finally, the thing starts. And I, I can't even believe it. Like, I had given up hope, like, 15 minutes earlier. This man kept pressing on. So now I'm gushing, so thankful. I'm giving him a hug. I, I made an attempt to pull up my wallet. He shut that down as quick as could be. He said, no, no, you save your money. Use it for the new baby. I thanked him. He, he blessed me, and, and off he drove. This good Samaritan. Maybe I'll see him someday in heaven. Aside from that, I doubt I'll ever run into him again. But a man that I didn't know that culturally was very different than me, racially was different than me, did not have a connection, but God used him to bless me. And that is the mercy of God. And if you've ever received that, you know what that's like. But even better, to be the one who can act on God's behalf, to bless someone else in need, to give them that feeling that you are not forgotten, that you are not left alone, that the Lord sees you, the Lord knows you, that while others may pass you by as you lie bloodied on the side of the road, I will stop, I will help you, because Christ has so transformed my life that I want to show mercy to others. See, those kinds of acts do reflect the heart and the mercy of God. It's the hand of God, the heart of God, extending out to friends and neighbors. And this is what God calls us to do. As he said to the man in the story, now you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. Of course, it's much, much easier to show this kind of love and mercy for those that are in our social bracket, or those that are in our economic sphere, or those that are racially or culturally like us, those that are politically like us, those that are religiously in our comfort zone. But what about those who are not? What about those that have need, that need mercy, that are hurting, that are not like us, that we do not connect with? What about those that are difficult to love or hard to love? What about those that put you at some sort of risk, that if you step out, you could risk your finances, your health, you could risk your reputation? But we are called not only to be inclined to help those like us, but to go out of our way to help those not like us. See, just like the priest and the Levite, I think there are demographics right here in Southern York County, right here in where you work in, in, in Baltimore County. There are people and demographics that you might be tempted to walk on the other side of the street. Yeah, I see them out of the corner of my eye. I'm not going to make eye contact, God forbid. I'm going to walk on the other side. But remember, they are our neighbors as well. See, the Samaritan in the story taught us that, right? That anyone in need is a neighbor. Anybody familiar with that, the uh, ABC News show, What Would You Do with John Quinones? Anybody seen that show, right? I, I love that kind of thing. I love putting myself in those scenarios. They set up these different scenarios, right? What would you do if you came across teens drinking or a senior citizen shoplifting or people walking out on a check at a, at a restaurant or, or a pregnant woman sitting at the bar doing shots, you know, and they set this up and they, and they film and they watch to see how people react and what other people are going to do. Well, there was this one that they did on the, on the street of Newark, New Jersey, where they had this well-dressed, attractive woman in a business suit walking down the sidewalk and they have her just collapse in the middle of the sidewalk and just fall out. She's an actor, of course. And they're filming secretly to see how long it'll take before somebody stops to help this woman. Anybody want to take a guess? How long did it take? I thought you were raising your hand. Be careful. You don't have to raise your hand. How, how long? 10 seconds? 
Anybody else? Six seconds. Six seconds on average for someone to stop on this crowded sheet to help this attractive businesswoman who had fallen out on the street. They then did another scenario where they have a disheveled older man dressed in ragged clothes, culturally different from this section of Newark, appearing to be dirty and homeless, fall down in the middle of the same busy side, same spot. Six seconds for the first woman. How long do you think for this man? Well, not an hour, but people are not that cold. But four minutes, four minutes, this man lay on the sidewalk, moaning in pain, falling out, before somebody stopped him, asked him if he needed help. What would you do? That's what John Quinones is asking. I'm asking the same thing. The Lord is asking the same thing. What would you do? Would you show mercy to someone in need? Not just the person like you, not just the person that was, you know, economically comfortable, but someone truly in need, someone who maybe culturally, racially, ethnically, religiously different from you, would you show mercy? Now, now we could read this parable and we could feel like, okay, this is calling us to like step up our game. I'm compelled. I'm going to go home and sign up online for a bunch of humanitarian aid newsletters and I'm going to get involved and I'm going to give. Or maybe, maybe some of you are like, I'm going to quit my job and go work in an urban area or an under, underprivileged rural area. And, and these are all wonderful Christian callings, and, and, and I thank God for people that fulfill these callings. But I thought it was interesting that the hero in the story just helped the person that he came across as he traveled the route that he was already taking. And, and so, yes, we can and we should, and we are called to go out of our way. And there are places in need outside of our local community both in the States and abroad, where we need church planners and missionaries and pastors and nurses and, and business people to go into those places. But I think the first step and perhaps the most important step is helping those whose paths you cross every day, right? Isn't that a beautiful part of the story? The Samaritan was just walking along the road. He sees a guy falling out in need, beaten and robbed and hurting. He would literally have to go out of his way not to help him. Who are the people that you are stumbling upon that are in your way, so to speak, on a daily basis? See, a team of us went to Tennessee earlier this summer to work on homes of people in need. It was a wonderful opportunity. But you know what's even better than going to Tennessee to work on, on homes of, of people that economically can't do the work themselves? It's the group of people that showed up yesterday for the home on Maryland Line to serve that family to help renovate and restore that home. But I dare say, you know what's even better than doing the, the service project yesterday on Maryland Line that we did? It would be going across the fence to the widow, right? It's going to the townhome communities at the end of your block where there are people that need help. It's, it's, it's the, the co-worker who maybe works in a different department on a lower floor than you, who you find out is, is walking 45 minutes to work because they can't afford a car or even a bus ticket. It's the people that, that you cross in life on a daily basis, that are just lying on the road, that are across the fence, that are in the backyard, that are in line with you at the grocery store. To serve, to love, to show compassion on those that are hurting. A friend told me recently about an opportunity that he and his, his family have had to serve an elderly woman who lives next to them. For years and years, They've lived beside this quiet woman, keeps to herself, 
And they've slowly kind of built up a connection, slowly built an inroad. And, and after like multiple times of bringing up her trash cans from the end of the driveway, she finally stopped telling them not to do it, and she let them do it. And after them going without her knowledge just to weed and, and do some yard work and, and her coming out and scolding them, she finally stopped scolding them. Her heart began to soften, right? And as, as they were, were now allowed to serve and to help this woman, and they began to get to know her, and she began to open up to them. Their kids began to, to make a connection, and they would then go and, and walk the dog with this woman as this woman would walk up and down the street, and, and my friend's kids would go with her. And recently, this elderly woman who was a widow, pulled, pulled my friend aside and, and confided in him that she had been diagnosed with cancer. She said, I haven't told my kids or my grandkids, I haven't told my sister, I, I need to go find out first what's going to happen, and, I, and I've scheduled an appointment to go do some further testing and have a procedure and do the biopsy, and, and I know there's this thing I've heard about Uber, can, can you help me on my phone call an Uber so that I can get to the hospital next week for this appointment? And of course, my friend said, sure, no problem. No. He said, are you kidding? I'm not going to call you an Uber. He said, just name the day and name the time. She said, but it might be early in the morning. He said, I don't care. Tell me when you need to go, and my wife or I will take you to the hospital. And so he got up at 5 a.m. the next week. He drove her to the hospital. He, he talked and ministered to her. Before she got out of the car, he, he, he prayed for her, and she put her head on his shoulder and showed a vulnerability and an intimacy that he, she had never seen. Several days later, they picked her up. They brought her home. They've continued that connection. They've continued to show mercy. They've continued to have more opportunities to pray with her, to be the hands and feet of Christ with her. This beautiful display of Christ-like mercy. Someone literally living right next door to them. Who initially didn't want their help. Didn't want their connection. Who are those people in your life that are hurting? Some of them are calling out desperate. Some of them act like they have it all together, but they are truly broken inside, some physically, some emotionally, some relationally. Who is it that God has called you to show mercy to? Who is God calling you this week? Is it a family member? Is it a friend? Is it someone you've lost touch with? Is it a neighbor that you've seen and you know has need? Is it a coworker? Maybe it's someone in need that's physically sick, that's physically struggling. Maybe it's somebody that's reeling from a divorce or, or still reeling from the grief and the death of a, of a spouse or a loved one. Maybe it's a teen across the street that you know is not seen, that you know is being bullied, that you know is hurting. Maybe it's somebody who is exactly like you, who is an identical life that you have, except they don't know the Lord. But maybe it's somebody that you have virtually nothing in common with. But the Lord still says, will you go show mercy to that man or that woman, your neighbor. Now, of course, as, as we go to close, it, it might be easy. Remember, we had these two questions. It might be easy to walk away and misunderstand the connection between the first question and the second question. The first question, how do I inherit eternal life? And the second question, how do I love my neighbor? How do those two questions relate? Because you might think, well, if I just love my neighbor enough, then, then I'll inherit eternal life. If I live and show and demonstrate God's love enough, then I'll, I'll get a spot in heaven. But we've already discussed and we've already shown that while loving God and loving your neighbor is at the heart of what it means to inherit eternal life, we are far too selfish, far too broken, far too sinful to ever reach God's standards. 
And so thank God he came down to us. Thank God he knew our need and he came down to us because he knew we could never reach up to him. And so, and so God the Son came down to earth for you and I, to rescue you and I. And Jesus came to fulfill all the requirements of the law, fully loved God, fully loved neighbor, climbed up on the cross, not to receive his own punishment, but to receive the punishment for his brothers and sisters, the sons and daughters of God, that through the resurrection we might receive eternal life. How do you inherit eternal life? As we said earlier, it's a free gift, a free gift of grace through the death and resurrection of Jesus. The Apostle John, 1 John 4, 9, says it like this. In this, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, there's that fancy word again, the atoning sacrifice to receive the wrath of God for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You see the call? The call is to first and foremost receive the grace of God. Confess your sin and come to him as Savior. Receive his love so that you can go out to love others, so that you can reflect the same mercy that you have received. See, see those who receive the mercy of God are the ones that show the mercy of God. The call for us is now to live a life showing the mercy of God that we have received in Christ. See, the parable of the Good Samaritan, this story of the kingdom, is showing us how to live in God's kingdom. It's, it's showing us what it looks like to be men and women that have inherited eternal life. That if you have inherited eternal life, this is the call. To not just wait to live in the kingdom someday, but to bring the kingdom to earth now as it is in heaven. Living in God's kingdom. Loving and serving as God himself. See, a heart transformed by God's spirit drives us to a life that reflects the love and mercy of God. Friends, if you've been transformed, it must drive our lives. Drive you to love those in your own home. Some of you are going to go home this afternoon and, and, and be in the house with people that are hard to love. Some of you are going to come across literally people on the side of the road, like literally someone broken down on the side of the road. Or maybe it's just a neighbor hurting across the fence. Maybe it's somebody whose body is physically beaten. For others, it's somebody whose heart has been torn apart, ravaged by addiction or depression or grief or anxiety or turmoil or hopelessness. The call is to, to show mercy to both Jews and Gentiles, to both Samaritans and Americans and foreigners, to those inside the church and outside the church, to Democrats and Republicans, to those who share your worldview, share your culture, and those who do not, those who love you in return, and those who, who consider you their enemy, who put you off. Jesus said in Luke 6, 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For He, God, God is kind to the ungrateful and the, e and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And so when you lack direction, when you lack clarity, when you lack motivation, you fall down and you say, God, remind me of the mercy that you have shown to me. Remind me of your heart and your compassion. Remind me of how your heart breaks for those in need. 
that I could stop and serve and show mercy to those on the side of the road that have been beaten. Because remember, friends, it was God who first showed mercy to us, God who first loved you and I, and it was as though you and I have been robbed and beaten, you and I have been left for dead by sin and by the pain of the world. And God came down to help us. He didn't pass by on the other side of the street. God had mercy for you and I. He cared for you and I. He bandaged our wounds. He waited with us while we healed. He healed us with, with the crushing of his, of his own son. He paid in full for our recovery out of his own pocket, even though he hadn't caused our wounds, self-inflicted wounds, the wounds of sin, the wounds of evil in the world, and the Lord comes to minister to us, to serve us, to show us mercy. And now our Savior Jesus says, go and do likewise. Be merciful. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And you stand with me as we pray, as we close out in worship and ask the Lord to be among us. God, we thank you for this familiar story. We thank you for this lawyer who came to question Jesus. That as we read this answer that, that we all need to hear and be reminded that it's only by your grace that we can inherit eternal life. For this beautiful old story, this legend of this good Samaritan, this hero that models for us the heart of God, that models for us our calling in the kingdom. And we ask now for grace because we know, God, we're going to walk out of this place and, 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 and the, the feeling that we have right now, the motivation that we have right now is going, to, is going to fade. We're going to become distracted. We're going to become turned off and disinterested. We're going to become worn down by difficult people. And so we're asking now that you would sustain us with your grace, that the mercy that you have given to us would sustain us and uphold us, that we could love and show mercy to the people in our own home to our co-workers, to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors, that we could live out of mercy, that we could speak words of mercy. We thank you for your abundant grace and your love for us. And we confess that, that without your spirit, without your help, we cannot reflect you, we cannot live in you. And so we ask, God, that you'd first transform us by your love, transform us by the indwelling presence of your spirit, that we could walk out of here transformed ready to love and serve and give and live just a hint, just a fraction of the love and the mercy that you've shown to us. Transform us and hear us as we sing and as we pray. In Jesus' name.